Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Story time. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Earlier this year, me and friend toured Chernobyl in the abandoned city of Pripyat. Part of our three days there was a trip to a children's pioneer camp, it's in the middle of nowhere, one road in, one road out. 
Anyway, the camp is all these wooden huts covered in the Soviet equivalent of Disneyland characters and is eerily quiet like the rest of the exclusion zone. My friend, myself and our tour guide had been exploring the old huts for about half an hour, finding occasional remnants of summer's past, old beds, desks, lamps, posters etc., just the three of us, miles from anyone else. Or so we thought. As I turned around taking a 360 degree video, I see a guy creeping out from behind one of the huts I've just walked past, about 10 meters behind me. When he saw that I spotted him following me he scurried back. I had no idea who this was, nor did our guide. A little afterwards I saw the same guy walking with who I thought was our guide. He was wearing camouflage fatigues like our guide, but it wasn't actually him. Turned out there were actually two of them, the other one apparently had an axe. We left pretty soon after. How they got in there, remember there is a 30 mile exclusion zone around Chernobyl, and what they were doing, I have no idea. A few years ago, Myself and a bunch of climber buddies were camping out in a well-known climbing area in Tennessee. It's not really that backwoods at all, but you feel very remote. The area is beautiful and the forest is thick. The climbing ain't bad. One night it was an especially cold and calm new moon. There was no wind at all and it had rained recently, so the leaves were wet and didn't crunch underfoot. We had the fire going late into the night not wanting to go to our freezing tents. Anyone who has sat around a campfire knows that feeling you get when the last flame dies and all you have left is an empty timber pile and the warm glow of the coals. At that exact moment when the last flame went out, we started to hear someone in the parking area tuning up a fiddle. That's not so weird right? We're in rural Tennessee after all. After a few moments of tuning, the player breaks out in full song. It was incredibly beautiful and the sound carried perfectly through the still air. My heart was on fire. I wanted to meet the man playing this wonderful music in the dark. I told my buddies I was going to go find the guy and ask if I could play with him for a song or two. Let me remind you, it was very cold. There's no way I could have played for more than a song, but this person played for a few by the time I got up. My friends never said a word to me. Never warned me not to go, never said it was a good idea, didn't even look at me. They just listened. I knew the area well and made my way to the parking area by instinct, following the music. As my foot transitioned from the leaves to the gravel in the parking area, the music stopped mid-measure. My heart rate spiked. I stood still for only a moment before I turned on my headlight which had been off despite the new moon so I could save what little night vision I had in these conditions. There was no one there. I looked around the parking lot and all I saw were our cars. I ran as fast as I could back to our tents to tell everyone what happened, but they were all asleep. I know it was just some mountain main messing with us, but to this day my friends won't talk about it. I'm not really a believer in ghosts but let me just say that right now however I saw something that I cannot explain one night while working the night shift as a ranger. I was patrolling a very wooded area, a very popular camping spot, this was in central Illinois. I won't tell you the park name. 
It's always been weird to me because this place is usually packed during the day but at night it's different, not that many campers stay overnight here. So this was right around 1.30 in the morning, and I just started my second round of patrolling, and I see this tall dark figure standing near an old cabin on one of the trails. For whatever reason, I thought it was a mannequin somebody had left out here for a prank, just because of the way it looked and how still it was. I got closer and realized I was wrong in my judgment. It was moving very slowly, though, but as soon as I shined my light on it, it didn't have a face, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, nothing. It was just this dark silhouette with what appeared to be arms and legs and looked just like a human only in shape, of course, it was completely black. The figure also appeared to have some sort of cloak or cape draped over him or her. So obviously I'm trying my best not to panic. My mind is racing with possible explanations for this thing. Perhaps some mischievous college students dressed in cloaks playing a prank, perhaps I'm hallucinating. Either way, it's creeping me out, and I want no part of whatever this thing is. But before I can turn around and walk away or run for that matter, this thing picks up speed and begins to run towards me. This thing gets about 20 feet from me and leaps up about 30 feet into the air, up into the trees like some sort of wild animal. And now I am freaking out, and panic is setting in. I'm obviously not dealing with a regular person, this is something else entirely. And like some wild crazy animal, it's jumping around on all fours from tree to tree, following me, keeping parallel with me as I'm running back to my truck. I run as fast as my legs could take me but found myself near the campground's entrance where I made a break for my truck, jumping inside and locking the door behind. I just sat there in silence for about 3 to 5 minutes, trying to catch my breath, thinking to myself I hope that thing leaves. I was too afraid to even shoot at it, and I had no idea how am I ever going to report this. I mean, number 1, who's gonna believe me, and number 2, my up aboves are probably gonna mock me and ridicule me. I could even lose my job if I reported such a thing, or maybe they even speculate that I was on drugs. So I kind of just sat there and sank in my seat, not sure how I should go about telling about this. This was easily one of the creepiest and most paranormal things I've ever experienced on the job. I never saw it again after that, thank God. My background is neuroscience and biology, nothing out of the ordinary for an academic. I've worked for multiple pharmaceutical companies, I was even one of the early employees at Eli Lilly's neuroscience division. At a medical device company, I was in college during the tail end of the Cold War when Reagan was in office, and the evil empire was still around. I had a couple of friends, John and Pat, for the story. They were on top-secret clearances as part of some army intelligence programs. John was one of the smartest people I ever knew, with a genius-level IQ, easily in the top 1% of people. Pat was in John's same grad school program. They were part of a special operations unit in the US Army, working on top-secret biological warfare research, believe it or not. I don't know all the details, but they were most likely involved in creating pathogens. John and Pat were tight-lipped about their project for obvious reasons, but they were pretty open about how easy it was to create biological weapons. 
They mentioned the possibility of maybe having created some sort of pathogen that was incurable. John had a brother who worked at Fort Detrick. John talked about him crying when he found out what they were working on. His brother told him that nobody would believe them if they ever spilled the beans about what was really going on. Years go by, John and Pat get out of the army and are immediately enlisted in this government project that was busy investigating various chemical and biological agents. They were tasked with creating new kinds of pathogenic weapons. I forget what they called it, but basically, they were trying to create new strains of pathogens that they could then use in experiments on animals. They were tasked with finding the best way to create new pathogens without being detected. They were able to take samples of various kinds of engineered viruses and use them as a vector for a new kind of pathogen, test each one on animals. This would allow them to learn a lot about the best way to create new pathogens without having to use them. John and Pat said this was really easy, even without using live viruses as vectors. They could simply extract the genetic material from the pathogen, find a vector so it could be transferred into another organism, like harmless bacteria, for example, and then test it. The product of this kind of experiment is a pathogen that can be used as a weapon, but it would be a biological weapon that could never be traced back to its source. At some point in their tenure at this project, they received a call from the Pentagon. They were told that one of the samples they'd been testing was extremely dangerous, and it had somehow gotten loose. They were told to pack up their stuff immediately and leave the premise and not say a word about what had happened and what they had worked on. They were discharged, for lack of a better word, from the project altogether and given $200,000 each in settlement under the table. They had no idea how it happened that this pathogen had got out of the lab, but it was later very quickly contained by military personnel before ever reaching civilian territory. Shortly thereafter, John and Pat were immediately moved into the bioweapons division that worked on creating humanoids of various kinds by intersplicing DNA of a variety of species, with the ultimate goal to create a superhuman soldier. I don't remember the details he told me, but they worked on creating a new type of being with superhuman abilities that, if it ever escaped, would be virtually unstoppable. Fortunately, that has not happened. Pat told me that because of his past history, John was considered a security risk, and he was not allowed to be anywhere near the facility where this new type of being was being created. Pat apparently wasn't allowed on site, only on the periphery of where he would be stationed, looking at security feeds. I asked Pat what had happened with this bioweapons division. He told me that it started as a joint CIA and military project, but it fell more and more into the control of the military as its life went on. Pat had suspicion that something had happened, apparently, there was a falling out between the head of the CIA, and the CIA eventually lost total control of the project. I don't really remember the details, but he said it soon became very obvious that the military was now conducting experiments, creating new weapons based on designs and ideas from this project. Pat had a feeling that they were, in some way, responsible for creating a new kind of pathogen and they would use it in some experiments in the field. I don't remember who they were experimenting on, but Pat said it was very obvious that they were no longer in control. There's a lot more to the story, but I asked him if he could give me some specific examples of something that had happened in the field.
He told me he'd have to think about it. The next time we talked, he told me that it seemed like all the lawsuits that came out of the US soldiers who were exposed to something in Iraq, that's what it seemed like to him. I even asked him if he could explain that a little bit better since I was having trouble understanding. He told me that at first, there were rumors and concerns about a new type of pathogen, and then that's when lawsuits emerged. He thinks they were being told to put soldiers from Iraq into quarantine, he thinks that's what the lawsuits were about, as if there was some sort of big cover-up. I asked him if he can tell me more about what had happened. Was this some sort of new virus? He explained no, but he was not allowed to tell me any more than that, he's already spoken too much. I don't want to push him, so we moved on with the conversation, going back to the bio-life forms that they were working on. He informed me that several of these subjects were still being created and worked on today. They were initially designed to be used during the Iraq war in the early 2000s, but for reasons unbeknownst to him, the plug was somehow pulled, and bioweapons were not used. That was part of the reason 9-11, I guess, was originally conducted, due to pressure from the CIA, military, and other shadow branches of government putting pressure to have means to test these new subjects. Of course, among many other reasons, but that's a rabbit hole he did not dive deep into. Again, he thinks the US government has used these new life forms in some capacity, and it's most likely happening without people even realizing. He said during his time, they were working on humanoids, and the project was still in its infancy when he left. He stated that they were nowhere near mature enough to be used, and the only reason he was still employed at the facility is that they needed people to help run these experiments. This was, of course, the pre-alpha stage, as he calls it. He said that they would bring these deformed humanoids to him, and he was supposed to experiment on them, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, of course. This was all before he was banned from the facility, only working the security feed, and long before John was banned. Pat had been told that he was being used to run tests on these humanoids, but there were other things going on where he was also being used to experiment. One of these said experiments was the J-Rod, who became well known for making contact with several other high-ranking military and government officials. Again, he did not go into detail but mentioned there were these groups that put together, made up of various divisions of the military, to make contact. He did not want to go into any further detail with that. I told him I understood, I asked him if there was anything else he wanted to add, and he told me that the whole time he was working there, he was still trying to figure out what the whole facility was about, and that's why it took him so long to leave. It wasn't until he began to see the humanoids that he began to realize it was something more than just military experiments. Pat said that at the time, the facility was beyond top secret, and then even most of his co-workers didn't know exactly what they were doing at first. This was before the experiments really began, they had to go in blind at first while things were being set up. They were forbidden to ask too many questions. He even told me the only reason why he was able to see the humanoids is because of his rank and his tour of duty. Most people were not allowed to see them, and the ones who did had their lives threatened. Pat stated that he is fairly certain that the old facility is now sold, and it's now a part of an advanced military-industrial complex. 
He also mentioned that there are corporations involved with whatever is going on. He said that part of what made it so difficult to leave was because there were people watching him, and he knew that if he left with the sensitive information he had, his life could be threatened. He was also scared that the new military personnel at the facility might try and do harm to him or his family. The reason I told the story to the person I did is that it was something that really stuck out in my mind when he said it. I knew that I had to share it with somebody, and this site seemed like a good place. That was the first I'd ever heard of Pat talking about the facility, and when I think about it, he still knows a lot of information. He was in charge of a good portion of a large military base, after all. Pat has been retired for quite some time now, and he's in his late 60s. I think it's fair to say that he's old enough and retired enough not to necessarily fear for his life. Pat has lived a full life at this point. In conclusion, I hope you take the information here to heart and understand that our government and military do not have your best interest. We are but cattle for them to slaughter and experiment on, our lives mean nothing to the greater good of humanity and country. These kinds of things, not specifically bioweaponry but experimenting, have been going on for a very, very long time. I think we're just now seeing a lot of it coming to the surface, and it's scaring people. Remember to always think for yourself, and know that eventually, the truth will come out. One final quick note, all the information here might seem disorganized and disingenuous, but all the intel I've gathered for you is a combination of information I've gathered from over years and years of conversations with Pat and John alike. So, if there are any details that overlap or don't make sense, just know that and try to put all the pieces together yourself. Besides, I've given you all the information, I hope this is enough. I'll never forget that day in Grand Canyon National Park. The rumors of strange sightings had been circulating among the visitors for weeks, and as the park ranger, I couldn't ignore the whispers any longer. Cryptids? Creatures of legend and myth? I was skeptical, to say the least. But duty called, and I had to investigate. One morning, during my routine patrol, a foul odor filled the air. It was putrid and overpowering, drawing me in like a magnet. I followed the stench into the depths of the deep woods, the ancient trees towering above me. The smell grew stronger with every step and I couldn't shake the feeling that something was watching me. As I emerged into a small clearing, my heart skipped a beat. There, on all fours, was the creature I had only heard about in wild stories. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Its fur was black and matted, hinting at the struggles of its untamed existence. Its face resembled that of a wolf, but with a broader and shorter muzzle, making it appear oddly menacing. Those eyes, Oh those eyes. They were yellow, but not the vibrant hue of sunflowers. No, they glowed with a dim, eerie amber red that sent shivers down my spine. Its ears resembled those of a Doberman pincher, with a distinct cropped effect. And those front legs, they were unnaturally long, like those of a bodybuilder. The paws were more like massive hands adorned with razor-sharp claws. The creature stood up on its hind legs, and I couldn't believe my eyes. The sickening popping sound filled the air, echoing as if amplified through loudspeakers. 
I felt the ground tremble beneath me as its massive, steroid-pumped body rose to an astounding height. There was no tail that I could see, and it towered over me even from a distance of 10 meters. I was no giant myself, standing at 5 foot 4 inches, and this creature was a colossus in comparison. My curiosity overwhelmed my fear, and I found myself inching closer, cautiously observing the cryptid in awe. Suddenly, it let out a howl that resembled more of a ferocious roar, and my heart pounded in my chest. This was it. I dared to take a few more steps, yearning for a closer look. But my presence had not gone unnoticed. The creature's head snapped in my direction, its yellow eyes locking onto mine. With a swift and graceful movement, it turned and sprinted away, its howls echoing in the distance. I was left standing there, trembling and in awe of what I had witnessed. There was no doubt now, all those cryptid sightings reported by visitors were true. The legends were real, and I had come face to face with one of them. In September 2002, I was living in my camper truck at the top of the McNair Creek Valley near Port Mellon, British Columbia. One foggy morning, I climbed up into the old growth and wandered around eating blueberries and listening. I had my sturdy hiking stick but was not even carrying any bear spray. After a few hours I headed back to my camp. I had to walk down a steep scree field at the base of which was my front bumper. Carefully, step by step, I descended the wobbly boulders on my wobbly ankles. I stepped off the last boulder onto a flat old road surface just in front of my truck. When I raised my eyes, I saw that some scraggly bushes, six feet away, were shaking and vibrating. I thought there must be some squirrels fighting in there. That is the only thing that could make bushes vibrate like that. I stepped forward and poked my stick into the branches to separate them. Suddenly, the shaking area grew to a larger area, three feet in diameter. Then this area of violently vibrating bushes moved away from me and accelerated up a steep slope. Out of curiosity, I tried to follow it, looking into the hole it was making in the vegetation. There was nothing in the hole. The running hole in the forest displaced vegetation in the shape of a tall, bipedal, hefty creature. It went up that steep slope as fast as the fastest running man you could ever see. It disappeared from my sight, over the top of the slope. Wow, I thought, an invisible Sasquatch and I had been two feet away from it. I must have poked it in the shin with my stick. It was afraid of me. I write this for other people who have experienced the predator. Glimmer man, that's what we call it. From the many accounts I have read, this thing is something different from a Sasquatch. From reading many accounts, it is an alien with cloaking and anti-gravity technology. It watches people and it likes to run through the forest. I harvested my first three bucks with my bow when I was 13 years old. I harvested them back to back three weekends in a row. I had an excellent teacher, my dad. I grew up in a small town called Morganza in Louisiana. Not far from there is where I learned to hunt on an island called Rikasi Island. I've also been a hunting guide and horseman for years in Colorado. I live in south central Pennsylvania now after moving 16 years ago to Maryland.
On March 5th I'll be 51. I had numerous experiences with these beings. I'll throw out two or three short ones. At least I'll try. When I was 17 years old, I was in a tree stand, bow hunting about 8 feet off the ground to get to this particular stand. This was off the Mississippi River across the canal. I could hear something huge running towards me. I could hear it when it jumped over the canal and landed. What scared me the most was how heavy it sounded, definitely bipedal, as if it were tapping on drums from a long distance. It just got louder and louder until it stopped in front of me about 50 yards in a huge thicket before getting close. I remember standing up on the deer stand to give me more height because I knew what was coming. It was going to be monumental. Through the thicket, I can see it silhouetted at about a 45 degree angle, at least 4 feet wide and 8 to 9 feet tall. I don't know why, fear, I guess, but I immediately said. Hey, there's someone hunting here. It immediately snorted and huffed twice or three times like it was trying to smell me. It started running again, then stopped again. Frightened out of my mind, I yelled out, that's a good way to get shot. I heard the last stick break and the last thud of its weight. I jumped out of the stand, hit the swamp behind me and waded through the alligator-infested waters to get to the levee to get back to town. The only way I could go back was through those woods. I knew that in less than a week I was moving to Maryland. Me and a buddy decided to camp out 200 yards or more from where that happened on the Mississippi River. We did this for 4 or 5 days. We were going to walk out along the Mississippi River one night and walk through the swamp and over the levee to a friend of mine's house to watch the movie Friday the 13th. Trying to keep it short, we'll meet two more of my friends at the house. We could hear them coming on the levee by three-wheelers. We were just about to turn off the Mississippi River to go through the swamp when three bright lights appeared in the air. Everything fell silent, which is remarkable for a swamp at night. Yes, it was a UFO. Me and my buddy were standing there. I thought we would be abducted. This thing was 50 yards wide. Three glowing lights in a triangle formation, not shining on the ground but illuminating the treetops. It was on top of a levee 150 yards from us. It was not a light bouncing in the sky a mile away, not a glowing orb, but a huge UFO. I could have thrown a baseball and hit it. It turned in a circle and soared up about 50 feet and soared straight up like a lightning bolt. Some people claim that sometimes when Bigfoot sightings occur there are UFO sightings nearby, but this is where things get weird. Yes. I believe in Bigfoot 100%. It is my hope that I will never see one again. 100% I believe in UFOs and hope I don't encounter one again. I can't even tell these stories to my best friend without ridicule. I thought it would be funny if one could just walk up and smack the hell out of him while he hunted. I think there's something more sinister in the woods. Of all the stories I've heard of Bigfoot, I've never heard one make noise in another story like the one did with me. I'm wondering if it was a dog man. I did not see a snout nor a clear view of the face either. I have one that a friend shared with me and a few encounters I have heard about in my area. I also have had some weird things that have happened to me in the woods over the last few years. My name is Will. 
No one should feel the shame for experiencing something strange in the woods. I have a dog man story. One of my good friends shared with me. Our friend grew up here in Maryland with me and I've known her since high school. She lives out of state now but when she visits we always exchange hiking stories and things we see out in the woods. Her job involves her being out in the woods for days at a time, so she is very familiar with all the things out in nature. One day we're talking about weird stuff we have seen and heard in the woods. She told me something that shocked me. Let me preface this by saying she knows I'm interested in the Bigfoot topic and that I have experienced weird things. So, she felt comfortable telling me what happened to her. She told me while taking a trip to Southern Maryland to visit a college campus with her mom there's a spot in the road that people apparently see the ghost of a Civil War soldier cross the road. As they're getting closer the spot she said that a giant black dog ran across the road and in front of the car on all fours. She told me the dog's back was five feet off the ground. She said it happened so fast that her mind didn't register what had happened until they're further down the road. She asked her mom if she saw it too and she had no idea what she was talking about. If I'm not mistaken I think she got her mom to drive back to the spot where it crossed and she saw nothing. The crazy part of the story is I have never mentioned to her that people see these dogman cryptids. I completely trust her and believe her story. I showed her some pictures of dogman I've seen seen on the internet and that artists have drawn. She immediately pointed to one that looked like a black German shepherd. There's a river I go hiking along that has some terrifying encounters with the creature that looks like a hyena with a lion's mane. I pray to God before I go hiking here that I do not run into this thing. I haven't had any gut feelings telling me to leave or anything like, therefore I still go out doing what I love. Apparently, back in year 2003, men were waiting in the river while fishing. One day they went around a bend and saw this hyena-type dog man in the river and it was drowning a deer. Then it apparently bluff charged the three men, then scooped up the deer with one arm and walked away into the woods on two legs. Travel further south down this river someone else was apparently chased on their dirt bike by another hyena-type dog man and this happened only a few years ago. I wonder if it was the same one? It seems like if you follow this river north Bigfoot encounters happen near this wildlife refuge. I recently heard of a sighting where one of these things grabs someone and the guy passed out from fear. This apparently happened just a few miles away from where I'm sitting right now in an upper middle class area that is highly populated and there aren't that many areas that have woods anymore because of more houses being built. I personally believe their stories. There's a lot of reports of these things in Maryland. If you're interested Google Dwayo. This incident occurred during the winter of 2018. I'm a drawbridge operator located outside of a busy vacation town in Maryland's eastern shore on the Chesapeake Bay. During the summer the bridge opened up quite a bit when a vessel was making its way either in from or out to the ocean. We tried not to disrupt the flow of traffic too much so we would batch the requests together and open the bridge every 20 minutes or so. There's a coast guard station near the bridge and perimeter is heavily fenced off. Apparently, they took trespassing incidents seriously. The winter traffic was minimal and the bridge might only open three or four times a day to accommodate the few commercial fishermen in the area. 
It was a very cold winter day in January when this incident took place. I had just started my shift. I was on nights for the next two weeks I was going over the previous operator's log notes. On the outbound log I noticed that the big coast guard cutter, along with a bunch of their smaller boats and the two tugs that they had had come through the bridge. I was a little bit of a surprise as it would take a few dozen people to man all of those craft, and it being winter that was quite unusual. There had been no May Day or distress calls broadcast so I figured that the Coast Guard conducted some kind of a drill or exercise. Later into my shift, and for some unknown reason, I missed a first call over the radio. As soon as I realized it I asked for them to repeat their message. It was the captain of that big Coast Guard cutter. I was told that the bridge needed to be opened in exactly 13 minutes and then it would need to stay open until I was given directions to lower it. This wouldn't have been an issue since fewer than six cars had crossed the bridge all night but military and law enforcement were entitled to passage through the canal as they needed it. They called in with the ETA so when the time got close I logged the communication and I opened the bridge. Looking out over the water I could start to see the bow lights of a small fleet of ships. It would end up being six in total including the cutter, two tugboats, and three other small craft. The smaller vessels were paced out about 500 feet behind the cutter. Directly behind the cutter were the two tugboats almost side by side. The operator room was about 70 or 80 feet away from where the bridge opened but there was a camera system which constantly recorded the area around and beneath the bridge. As the cutter passed beneath the bridge and passed one of the cameras I could make out a few dozen people aboard the craft. I couldn't believe it at first but about half of them were holding assault rifles. Then the tugboats came next. It was the middle of the night and water visibility here is poor but I could just make out the thick tow ropes trailing into the water behind the tugs and attached to them was something unbelievably long. It was hard to tell but whatever it was looked smooth with a greenish hue. I could see a scaly texture and just by how much time it took for the creature to pass by the camera I guessed that it was at least 200 feet long. I'm not even sure that I saw the end of it before what happened next. I'm not positive if it was because of the lights on the bridge or the underwater noise of the props bouncing off the nearby concrete, but the long thing started moving slowly. It was kind of swaying back and forth beneath the bridge. One of the guys on the tugboat started yelling out loud and I could see the small craft was straining to maintain its straight path. The three smaller boats in the back started gunning in towards the tugs kicking up tons of wake. The water started churning violently throughout the canal in an area a few hundred feet long. On camera I could see that one of the tow cables from a tugboat snapped and now that it was no longer restrained. The tug shot forward slamming into one of the bridge pilings. I heard a quick round of pops followed by another and I ran over to the door of the office and pushed it open. From my vantage point I could see the small boats in the rear of the convoy speeding up to the tugs but giving the erupting water a wide berth. Suddenly, several of the guys started shooting at that long creature in the water. The other tug, now bearing the full burden, was getting dragged across the surface. At one or two points it looked like it might even dip beneath the water. The cutter was trying hard to come around but the bridge didn't give it any room. It was hard to tell how it happened but somehow the line from the other tug snapped just as a massive snake-like tail erupted out of the water near one of the smaller boats, 
slamming down on the edge of it. This caused it to tip. There was a minute of total chaos. A few of the crew were floating in the water. The gunshots stopped but the shouts continued for at least a minute longer. One of the other boats went to pick up the floating crew of the tipped boat and the other craft fell back into the loose semi-formation. The convoy then headed in the direction of the Coast Guard station. The creature or whatever it was didn't resurface again. I dropped the bridge and I just plopped into my seat at the desk. I was trying to figure out what had happened. A few minutes later, a black SUV drove over the bridge and stopped right in front of the operating room. Two men got out of the vehicle and they walked right in without knocking. One was wearing a US Coast Guard uniform and carrying an assault rifle. The other man was wearing a style of uniform that I didn't recognize. This man introduced himself as a US Navy captain, name withheld. He told me to recount the events that I had just witnessed. So I did. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. He then asked a bunch of questions, like if I had recorded anything or contacted anybody. I told him no, but that the bridge utilized a camera system. He finished by telling me that I was relieved for the night and that I should get a call from my supervisor soon that would confirm it. I didn't say anything else. I grabbed my stuff and I headed home. My supervisor did call me while I was driving. He sounded just as confused as me but he told me that I had the next week off with double pay. He called back a few days later and he told me that a new position for a higher paying administrative job at another location had just opened and refusal wasn't an option. So, here I am now working that new job. I don't know if I can get in trouble for repeating any of this but I guess I will soon find out. I know it sounds like complete BS but it really did happen. I live in Knightsville, South Carolina. The first incident happened on November 29, 2021 at around 11.30 p.m. I'm a single mom. I struggled to sleep that night with a severe migraine. I woke up from a dream and felt like there was something in my room. My daughter slept in my bed with me and I hid us both under a blanket. She stayed asleep the whole night, including during this visitation. I was under the blanket when I suddenly felt a finger pressed down on my forehead between my eyes. It wasn't a small finger, it was as if a large man pressed his finger between my eyes. I started to panic and reluctantly reached out from the blanket to grab my cell phone beside my bed and called my mom. I was really scared and needed to talk to someone. My mom answered the phone, but the call abruptly ended. When I peeked out of my blanket, I saw something in front of me. I could tell something was in front of me, but it looked like a mirage. I couldn't see through it, but I could see something was there. I started panicking even more. I told myself that I was seeing things and reached my hand out to prove there was nothing there. I was wrong, and I grabbed onto a thin arm. 
That really freaked me out, so I again dialed my mom but the phone was dead and wouldn't turn itself on. It was plugged into the charger wire so this made no sense at all. Suddenly, I was back into a dream state and a character from a TV show that I enjoyed was standing in front of me trying to calm me down. But I felt like this being was just appearing as something I liked. Then I fell asleep again and dreamed that my daughter and I were on a beach. I looked down into a tide pool on the beach and saw some red and blue tiger's eye stones, so I picked them up and put them in my pocket. When I woke up again, I checked my phone and it had been charged, and the time was 4 am. My migraine was completely gone. The next day, I felt weird and lethargic for the entire day. I believed that I was traumatized, but it was not scary. I didn't feel threatened or hurt. It just frightened me to wake up from a dream and see what was happening. I'm not sure how to explain it. However, as soon as the finger touched my forehead, I saw in my mind's eye that it was a long gray finger. Can you explain what happened to me? I later had a dream that an alien gray had come into my bedroom, but it was brief and I'm positive that it was just a dream. My daughter now has her own bedroom. Recently, she has described a green wavy man visiting her at night. She remembers three separate visitations. I set up a video camera in her room, but on the nights when she experiences visits the camera doesn't record anything. She says that she isn't frightened by the visitor, but I'm very concerned. My most beloved uncle committed S in 91. We were stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington and had no phone so the state police and a chaplain came and delivered the news. Had to move through military channels to pull my husband out of the field in Yakima. My mother had to pay bank to get us on Delta, and home, Kentucky, in time. We landed about an hour before the service, so you can imagine how exhausted we were. I hadn't really slept in three days. This man was my father. He was our patriarch. We muddled through the service and returned to his and my aunt's house. My husband was devastated and tore ass through a healthy amount of beam. Got my aunt sedated and in bed, went outside to comfort my man. He's in the tree swing and I'm trying to soothe or drag his ass in cause I am beyond wore out. Let me interject here that I have had a bizarre fascination slash fear of UFOs and aliens my whole life. My fam lived in the country way away from civilization, and there were nights I drove home in the middle of the night leaving their house speeding to get to city lights. My cousin was a little prick who would wait until bedtime, I always got his room when I came, and say hey, Martianus, hope your friends don't come visit tonight. Aliens. He thought my fear was hilarious. My uncle on the other hand, was intrigued by my duality about the subject. Coming full circle here, as I'm cajoling hubby, a UFO appears above the farmhouse. Not an army flare, an airliner, nor a Chinook, not fireworks. This thing was huge, pulsating an odd orange and red glow. I farreaked the F out for a second ran in and got smartass cousin, who was young and as sober as I was. Hubby met us at the back door and we piled out into the yard. I felt the biggest sense of calm come over me, and oddly enough, cousin, who never believed and ridiculed, came unglued. It just hovered for like 15 minutes and just gradually floated and dimmed out over the pastures until we could no longer see it.
I believe my uncle came to say goodbye to me and help me allay my fears. My cousin has never yanked my chain again. My name is Alex. I'd like to tell you a true story that happened to me at work. Back in 2013, I briefly worked in a furniture manufacturing warehouse for six months. We mass-produced wall units that held your TV, VCR, and stereo all in one unit. Me and about 10 other people were hired to work the 4 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. shift to cut, drill and package the particle board. The customer would then assemble the entertainment center at home. The person in charge of the shift, I forget his name, was a co-worker in his mid-twenties with long light brown hair, about 5 foot 8 inches tall, looked like he worked out with weights, was quiet, did his job well, was a nice guy. He kind of looked like Heath Ledger, the actor. About three months after working there, I came into work like any other day. At lunchtime, I was at the workstation by myself eating my lunch when the person in charge of the shift came up to me and asked if he could talk to me. For the next 15 minutes, I had the most profound experience of my life while he talked to me. This individual that doesn't know me anywhere, except work, started telling me things about myself with pinpoint accuracy. Things that nobody else, but me, could understand. How could he know things about me that I have experienced in the past that only I could understand? He was not cold reading me, like a palm reader would. He said exact occurrences. It was a very strange situation. Lunch time was over and we all returned back to work. For the next three months, he was there every day, working as usual like nothing ever happened. After three months, there was a work shortage and everybody from the evening shift got laid off. I never saw him again. I later moved from the East Coast to California. About a year ago, I met a guy at a get-together at a friend's house who, I swear, was the same guy. It was so weird. His name was Michael. I asked my friend about Michael and he said that he knew him from his job. A few weeks later, I went to lunch with the same friend and Michael was with him. Instantly, Michael started recalling things from my past. I asked him if we had ever met before, but he insisted that we hadn't. Recently, my friend told me that Michael had suddenly quit his job. When he tried to contact him, he was nowhere to be found. I wonder, was Michael a doppelganger or the same guy from before? It's just so strange. The creepiest time I have ever had in the wilderness was when I was being followed by what I assume was a homeless man or drifter. Now I wasn't like miles away from civilization, but I was on a local parks path about 45 minutes from the parking lot. My wife and I were at a point where the amount of people was very slim. So we stopped for a drink of water at our halfway point, and across the canal I can see a guy in a jacket, full-length pants, and he has a sack with him probably full of human heads. It is like 90 degree weather, so to see someone in that outfit is fairly weird, let alone carrying a sack in the middle of the wilderness. I could see the guy looking at us, and I decided that we needed to head back to the car. So my wife and I start walking back, when I decide to peek back about 5 minutes later, and the drifter is about 100 yards behind us. I have no clue how he got across the canal. 
Although my wife would later find out there was a small pipe he could have crossed, but at this time I thought he was super drifter or something, so we keep walking, and I would casually peek behind us every now and then, the drifter was always the same distance behind us. At one point a guy on a mountain bike comes ripping around the corner of the path, and directly at the drifter. He skids to a stop and they start having an argument. Their argument ends with the guy on the bike yelling at the drifter to get a job, then he pedals off. I decided that we needed to walk faster, so I tell my wife to pick it up, hopefully that will give us some distance from the drifter. I look back a couple minutes later and the drifter is about the same distance from us. I'm really confused at this point, because my wife and I are not slow walkers at all. We both are runners and have good stamina or speed. This drifter in his full pants slash jacket carrying a sack in 90 degree weather is keeping up with us. At this point I am beyond freaked out, so I tell my wife to pick it up even more. We are going at a very fast walk pace, I would say it was comparable to jogging, but in walking form. Every time I look back the drifter is about the same amount of distance from me. Eventually we start to see people on the path, and I just hope that the drifter decides he wants to stop and talk to one of those people, but he never does, he just keeps following us. We make it back to where we parked our car, it only took us 30 minutes to get back to our car. As we get in the car, dripping in sweat, we drive away and see the drifter emerge onto the sidewalk in town. I was probably 21 because I was sharing an apartment with my sister and that would make her 18. It was in Thousand Oaks. The apartment was on the third floor and we always had a bunch of friends over. It was pretty much the party apartment. So we had a bunch of friends over like once a week and we would do Ouija. I didn't have a board so what I did was, I made one. I got a big piece of cloth, like t-shirt material, jersey. I drew all the letters on it and made all the designs and I created a Ouija board. And I had like a glass ashtray. A small glass ashtray that we could use as a pointer. So the ashtray would just go over the letters and we could see through. So we had a lot of fun with it. We'd ask silly questions just for the first few times. Everybody would ask questions and it was a lot of fun and everybody had a good time. And then one night we had an entity come through. God. I don't even like to say his name because it still freaks me out to this day, but he called himself AJ. And he would just at first just kinda play around with us. You know, I think he was just kinda stringing us all along, kinda thing. We would ask who he was, when was he alive? How did he die, you know, those kind of things. And he told us that he died in a school bus accident and all of the kids in the bus died and we were like, ooh. We were getting kinda creeped out by that and he said he felt so guilty about it and it was his fault. I know it's hard to think that you could get that kind of information from a Ouija board but I mean this was over time and so my sister and I tried to investigate. We didn't have an area but we assumed it was from the local area and we tried to investigate. We couldn't find any news stories about a major school bus incident like that. We looked at the local cemetery to see if we could see his name there. We couldn't find anything. So it got to the point where the friends would come over and this entity would always come through. We were like, we don't want to talk to you. We want to talk to somebody else. It just got to be, you know. It was starting to freak us out. 
So we were thinking how do we get rid of this guy and then all of a sudden then he started coming to me in my dreams. So now I'm getting really tripped out. I'm like, I said to my sister, her name was Crystal, I'm like Crystal we have got to get rid of this Ouija board. He's starting to come into my dreams. We gotta get this thing out of the house. It's a bad entity or whatever. I didn't ever see him in my dream. It was like he was talking to me in my dream and he told me his name so that's how I knew who he was but I didn't see him. It was just really freaky and bizarre and scary because I'm thinking, if we can not only come through a Ouija board, of course, you know, I'm not thinking sensible, of course he come through anything. If he can come through the Ouija board, of course he can come into my thoughts or what have you. Jimmy Church asks if they ever found out who he was. We never found out who he was and we decided to get rid of the Ouija board. So we took the Ouija board and we threw it into the big apartment dumpster out back. We just threw it away. And we were like no more oh ow eyeing. No more. We'll do something else. We'll have the friends over for a party but we're not gonna Ouija anymore. So, like a week later, my sister and I are in the kitchen and we're cooking and I said get me the blah blah or whatever out. What I was asking for and she goes to the drawer to pull it out and there, folded up in the drawer is. Guess what? I am serious. She's like, Maria, look in the drawer. I'm like, how is it there? How did it get there? We threw it out. How did it get there? We ended up burning it. We were so freaked out. So scared. That was the end of it. Once I burned it, that was it. On or about September 25, 1973, I was enrolled in a doctoral course that met from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at Baylor University. This course met two nights a week. After class, I was driving west for home when I noticed a bright light above Lake Waco. At first, I thought it was the planet Venus. However, as I continued to drive toward the lake as I lived on the west side of town, I noticed that the light was appearing more and more to my right. So I knew it wasn't but it was probably a helicopter. Two nights later as I drove home from class, I noticed the same light again. Since I wasn't sure if it was a helicopter or something else, I thought I would check it out. Instead of returning home, I drove over the bridge at Lake Waco and took the first exit to the right. This led to Spiegelville Park. I could see the craft was on the west side of the lake in a stationary position with a white light pointing east. As I approached the craft, it turned off the light and moved to the southwest. I could tell it was a black triangular craft. It crossed the highway, and I followed it. I got back on the highway and watched the craft cross over the highway and settled behind a clump of trees on the south side of the highway. I then took the next exit and crossed over on an overpass to the area where I saw the craft go down. I could not see the craft as I drove slowly past the trees. The road curved back east, and I pulled up about 100 yards, turned off my lights but left the engine running. Looking in my rear view mirror after a few moments, I saw it slowly rise from the trees and come toward where I was parked. It then pulled up to where I was on the other side of the fence. It turned to face me and remained motionless, making no sound. It was on the other side of what appeared to be a telephone line about 10 feet above it. I could definitely tell that the craft was black, 
triangular in shape, about 20 feet wide and 30 feet long. It had a cockpit with a greenish hue inside, and I could see the shadows of three small heads peering down at me. After about four to five minutes, a green light appeared on my vehicle, causing the engine to die. I tried to restart it without success. I tried turning on my lights and radio, but nothing worked. Getting nervous, I locked my door. I sat there for a good 15 to 20 minutes, trying every two to three minutes to start my engine. Finally, the engine turned over, and I drove down the road about another 100 yards where I put on my lights and turned around. As I drove past the craft on my left, it hadn't moved. When I got back on the highway heading east, I could see it was still there. About three years later, I saw what appeared to be the same craft above the lights at the south end of the La Vega football field. It was apparently observing a football game. My family and I headed to my wife's family for dinner. And I wanted to drive over and show her what I had seen years earlier, but she didn't want to see. Having served two years in AFROTC and two years in the US Army with a top secret clearance, I can say without a doubt that this craft was not ours. I used to work in South Africa doing wildlife work and on a normal day I typically was out in the bush by myself. The area that I was working had the highest density of African leopards in South Africa, and when I started working there I was told you will probably never see a leopard, but a leopard will probably see you every day. This was kind of a creepy thought in its own right, but it didn't really bother me at all. We had some trail cameras set up in the area to catch photos of wildlife, and they obviously caught any people that would walk by as well. One day one of the other researchers called me over and showed me a picture of myself walking past a game camera, and less than a minute later a large leopard walked past the camera going in the opposite direction, coming from the direction I was walking towards. He must have heard me coming and just ducked off into some bushes for a second, watched me pass and continued on his way. I had no idea. So I spent a lot of time hunting and fishing in some of the more rural areas of North Carolina. I have seen graveyards that date back to colonial times in central to western parts of North Carolina that you would assume were too far from the coast to be settled. I have had experiences in houses that predate the 1890s, as far back as we can trace, that would definitely make you believe in ghosts but the strangest and most frightening experience I have had was when I witnessed what I could only assume to be ball lighting last bow season. Last year in September my brother, his girlfriend and myself moved into a nice older house that is on 13 acres of property. Being avid bow hunters the first thing we did was hang a ladder stand on the most obvious deer trail and drop a corn pile and camera nearby. Flash forward to mid-October. We've been seeing a good amount of deer on our camera and are super excited to take turns sitting in the stand. One afternoon my brother and his girlfriend are leaving to visit her family that lives just a few miles down the road. I decide to take the opportunity to hunt. The leaves are falling and everything is orange in the woods. Right at dark in the fleeting moments of legal shooting light I hear the unmistakable sound of deer moving towards me. 
What I mean by unmistakable is that deer typically walk so cautious they barely make any sound at all often stepping g lightly enough that you would think it was an animal much smaller as size until they break a branch. It's the trained ear aspect that other hunters would be familiar with. It's getting darker and darker and typically I would climb down but these deer are shadows right on top of me now. I hesitated because I didn't want to alert them in hopes of coming back and catching them in the act earlier at some point in time. I'm watching these sleek long shadows when bam all of a sudden the woods lights up with this glow. In retrospect it's hard to describe exactly what happened or what I saw but it looked precisely like what a lighting bug looks like in the distance except on a much larger scale. A bright green flame like ball the size of a dinner plate. Hell maybe even bigger just lit up four feet off the ground right underneath me. I waited for the deer to explode through the woods but early they didn't. As a matter of fact they vanished almost like transported. Just gone. The light itself only illuminated for a few seconds and then complete darkness. Needless to say I waited another three hours for my brother to come looking for me pulling up in his truck worried. There was no way I was leaving the safety of that tree stand until someone came and I wasn't alone. Ha! Huh. Crazy! My brother passed away about 7 years ago on March 22nd. Sometimes I have visitation dreams from him where we sit and talk. I hadn't had one in a while. Back in late March of 2015, not on the 22nd, I happened to have another one. In the dream, we were sitting somewhere talking. During the dream he put his hand on my shoulder and at that moment I woke up. I realized I had to take a leak, so I got up walked into the bathroom, switched on the light and looked in the mirror. On my arm, where he had touched me in the dream was a large bruise. And right above it was his first initial written in pen just above the bruise. I don't have any pens in my bedroom and I am not a sleepwalker and I am not on any medication. The bruise didn't hurt at all and faded within a few days. I have no idea how to explain what happened. My heroin addiction hit rock bottom back in May or June of this year. I ended up not being able to pay my rent, so I pawned off almost all of my possessions. And before I could piss every cent of it away I decided to buy some basic camping supplies. A tent, a fire starter, parachute cord, knives, snare wire, etc. Because I knew it would be impossible to live out of my car in the summer heat. I ended up doing a kind of hybrid thing where I would spend a few days out in the woods, then go back to my car to pawn some more of my shit and score dope or food. The point is, I was wandering off into the woods at night without any real idea of what I was doing. I would usually try to go a mile or so in so that I wouldn't be in as much danger of being on anyone's property and getting arrested. However, this was harder than I imagined it would be. The woods near the trails I grew up wandering, which had acres of land separating them from any homes, had become a victim of the McMansion developments that sliced into forests all across the nation. So I would often find myself in an area I thought was desolate, only to realize that there were houses one-eighth of a mile or so away. Whenever this happened, I was always afraid some kid would go running into the woods to play in the early morning, see me, and then rush to his parents. 
who would undoubtedly call the police about the six feet two unshaven stranger sleeping on their property with two giant knives, military-grade rope, and snare wires. Like I said, I didn't know what the F I was doing, so I often found myself hiking through the woods long after nightfall, swinging my machete blindly and struggling to assemble my tent with one hand. While I held my phone's flashlight in the other, that is, until I pawned my iPhone too. It was one of those nights, well into the evening by the time I set out, and I had tried to make it a point to go much further into the forest than usual. Due to the aforementioned fear of being caught near those housing developments. I finally decided I had hiked far enough. I was looking for a large open clearing that used to spook me as a kid, but now seemed like the ideal place to set up camp. Looking back, I'm guessing it was a grow up, but at the time, the abandoned minivan with creepy word spray painted on the side filled to the brim with peat moss was rather unsettling. The woods were very dense, so clearings were difficult to come by, and I had to take what I could get. Unfortunately, I had no luck finding the place, but by the time I was certain I had gone too far, 11 to 12, I figured at least I was far away from the housing developments to not have to worry about the cops. I was shining my phone's flashlight around, and I spotted a very small clearing a few hundred feet from the trail. I went over to it, and realized it was a fairly thick patch of moss on top of a rocky surface. I figured it would have to do, so I struggled and cursed my way through the process of setting up a tent in the pitch black night. It was almost 1am by the time I finally lay down to sleep. At first I was on my side facing right, but when I tossed over to my left, 4 inches of moss is hardly a tempurpedic, and the withdrawals weren't making my situation any better, I saw something strange. Through my tent, I was able to see a single point of light in the distance. I couldn't quite tell the source or where it was, but my first guess was that it was a flashlight on the trail, since it was definitely bright enough for me to have seen it when I was setting up camp. As I stared at it, however, I noticed that it didn't seem to be moving. That meant that whoever's light it was was either standing still or else moving parallel to my eye line. I continued to stare at it, and it continued to remain the exact same size, which meant it wasn't moving towards or away from me. I stared at it for 5 minutes, and the only thing I could come up with was that it was a backyard porch light for one of the newly built houses. Thing was, as I stared at it, I got the impression that it was moving ever so slightly, just barely enough to pick up on. After a half an hour of this, I convinced myself that I must have not noticed the house due to the time I arrived, and I was content enough with that explanation to be able to fall asleep. However, when I awoke the next morning, just as I had originally thought, I was in the middle of nowhere, probably a mile from the nearest house. My time slip story happened in the summer of 1987. One night, I experienced something that enabled me to see the world through someone else's eyes for no longer than a minute. It scared me senseless at the time and I have no explanation for the events all those years ago. The backstory is this, my then girlfriend, we'll call her Helen, lived in a big, former vicarage built around the 1800s, in a small village in Yorkshire, UK some miles from my hometown. Her father was a wealthy guy who worked for the government. 
He bought the house for the family to live in a couple of years earlier and renovated it to bring it back to its former glory. One August weekend Helen had the house to herself. Her brother and parents were somewhere else. She decided to have a small party. I was instructed to bring my buddy Tim along. It seemed that one of her friends had a thing for him and really wanted to meet him. So the party was me and Tim, my girlfriend and three of her mates from university, one of whom was the reason my friend was reluctantly set up to meet. Okay so the scene has been set, we turn up with a large quantity of beer and attitude. I did my part by bringing Tim along to meet the girl. However, he then got drunk and embarrassed, and failed to fulfill his expected role of sweeping this very pretty, but rather dull young woman off her feet. He wasn't concerned about romance and enjoyed himself in his own way. We were 20 and that night beer and silliness took over. It was a night I will never forget. By midnight, the girls were all in Helen's bedroom doing what girls do when things happen. They were ganging up together and probably having a group anti-men therapy session. At this point Tim and I were ready to find somewhere to fall into deep sleep. We decided to worry about facing these disappointed women in the morning. I wasn't drunk, but I drunk enough beer and didn't want to drive us home. I suggested we find a bed somewhere in this sprawling rambling old house. Now imagine a house with maybe 12 rooms upstairs. I knew the door to the bathroom and to Helen's room, but every other door was a mystery. Tim and I walked to the end of a passage and pushed open a door. The room was empty except for two small ancient iron beds squeezed against the wall and a few packing crates. There was no carpet on the floor and no other furniture. It was like a small store room but there were beds and we weren't too fussy. In our sleepy state, we just fell asleep. The next thing I knew, I was sitting up in bed, looking out of the window opposite. The window had five bars, upright bars like an old jail. The sun was streaming into the room and it was blinding me. Outside the window, I could clearly see the branches of a large tree as they moved in what seemed to be a very windy morning. The next thing I realized was that the room was filled with furniture, very old-fashioned furniture. It seemed like a nursery with a rocking horse in the corner, but there was no ceiling electric light. Not sure why I looked up but I did and remembered there was no light. As I tried to make sense of where I was, I could hear people moving outside the room. I could also hear the distinct sound of china cups and plates chinking as people carried and served food. I tried to get out of my bed but I was totally paralyzed from the waist down. My legs wouldn't move, and I panicked. I looked to my right and there was no other bed, snoring Tim. I was terrified. A door opened and a young woman walked into the room. She started speaking to me but no sound came out of her mouth, she was dressed like a servant from a period movie, there was no kindness or smiles. She came in and spoke to me, no idea what she said, and then left. At this point I was shaking like a leaf and trying to figure out what to do next. I remember thinking I should check the time. I looked down at my watch and everything went dark. I could hear snoring and my digital watch showed it was 3.10 am. Wherever I had been, I was back where I needed to be. I leapt out of bed, felt for the light switch and turned it on. Everything was 1987 again, confirmed by the language from Tim who was woken up by the light. The rest of the night passed without incident. 
First thing in the morning I was awoken, again, by the sunlight streaming through the window. This time there were no bars on the window, no tree limbs bending the shafts of light that streamed into the room. It was just an ordinary window. I went downstairs, leaving Tim to sleep. Once the girls had poured me a coffee, I took it outside into the large garden. I needed to see where the tree had gone, the tree that I saw so clearly a few hours before. Helen and her friends followed me outside and I explained what had happened, that I had seen a huge old tree and bars on the window. The tree was gone. No tree stump anywhere near the building. I saw the small window of our room, and then we saw a rather hungover Tim smiling weakly, waving from the same window, who had heard us talking outside in the garden. The story might have ended there. I believe that for a short period of maybe 30 to 45 seconds I swapped places with a former occupant of that room, at a time when there was no electric light, bars on the window, an old tree beyond the window and a rather unhappy servant whose voice was on mute. After I told Helen everything, she went quiet and said nothing. Have you ever been to my dad's study? I answered that I had not. She said follow me and we walked into a downstairs room where her dad worked and had his den. He collected documents and photographs from the house's history, to help him and the architect renovate it to its former glory. She pointed out a set of five old sepia photographs, which were framed on the wall. The earliest dated from about 1880, through maybe 10 years, judging by the ages of the children, of presumably the same family. It shows the resident, the local vicar, sitting in the garden with his wife and family. He was dressed in Victorian dresses, sailor suits and starched collars. There were, I think, eight children and one was in an ancient wheelchair. They were all arranged in front of a huge oak tree, behind which the window of our time-slip room clearly had bars. The boy in the wheelchair looked about 12 and was clearly very disabled. He didn't appear in any of the later photos on the wall. So that's my story. People will say, yeah, the guy had been drinking, I had, but no amount of German beer and Marlboros, there were no drugs involved, would cause me to experience what I did. The weirdest thing about the whole event was that it felt hyper real, like everything was turned up on ATV, contrast, brightness, color, everything except the volume on the grumpy servant. I will never forget how terrifying the whole thing was to me. I haven't had anything like that happen to me again, nor do I want to repeat it. My experience left me fascinated by the time slip stories that I know you enjoy. However, I had a genuine wish to never again pass through whatever dimensional or time-space curtain exists, and it really does exist.